All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, continuing on with the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And Jesus is going to be talking about the subject of swearing oaths this morning. His pattern uh, so far has been to state the commandment from the law that everybody's familiar with, and then to drill down to the intended meaning. So he said, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say anybody who's angry in their heart. And you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say anybody who lusts in their heart. And so he's, he's, he's drilling down on these things. And, and this, this does two things for us. One, it crushes those who think they're doing an awesome job in keeping the law. It shows you that you're not doing as great as, as you think you are, um, that we can't accomplish the holiness and the righteousness that God requires. The second thing it shows us is it shows us the heart of God for his creation. This is how he wants us to be. This is what he desires. And the good news is that Jesus has fulfilled what God wants on our behalf, and we can receive that by faith. So this morning, we're going to see that one, we we fall short in the area of keeping our word and fulfilling our oaths, but then we're going to see how Jesus is willing to meet those standards for us and, and save us in that regard. And then because of what Jesus has accomplished for us as kingdom people, we can then reflect that, that what he's imputed to us, we can reflect that, that integrity and that honesty into the world around us, which is a fantastic thing for us to be able to do. Now, in our text today, Jesus is going to key in on two different commandments that we're familiar with. Hopefully, you're familiar with them. Uh, he's, he's going to talk about uh, the ninth commandment, which is, you shall not bear false witness or lie. And he's going to key in on the third commandment, which is, don't take delayed, the, the, don't take the Lord's name in vain. I almost did it on accident. <laughs> Um, basically what, what was going on is people were doing both of these things by swearing oaths in God's name and then not keeping them. And, and then somehow, they, not only had they done that, but then they were twisting what they were doing in a way that made it appear like they weren't doing anything wrong. And whether we like to admit it or not, this is something we're all pretty good at. Um, I'm great at justifying my bad behavior. We are experts at excusing our sin aren't we? You know, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. We're experts at justifying our sin. If you only knew what my life was like, if you only knew the kind of day I had, we're, we, we can justify it. And we're great at shifting the blame for our sin onto other people, aren't we? The devil made me do it. That's a, that's a good one. Or that wife you gave me is a popular one I've heard of. Uh, we, we find ways to shift it onto somebody else and take the blame off of ourselves. What Jesus is going to do through the Sermon on the Mount is he's going he's to hold up the mirror of the law right in front of you and say, you're without excuse. This is the, this is the reality. This is the truth of who you are and what you're like in a way that we can't escape it. And this is incredibly gracious. You know, nobody likes to see that, but it's meant to cause you to flee to him in desperation to be your savior. That's, that's, that's the good news of this. So you're going to see what you're really like, but it's going to drive you to Jesus who can save you. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 33, it says this. Again, you have heard it said by those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the, to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. 
So we're going to start out by looking at the problem that Jesus is addressing because it's very easy to, to come across a topic like this and immediately distance yourself from it. I don't know if you're good at this, but I could say, you know, I don't remember the last time I made an oath, so this doesn't apply to me. I sure wish somebody else was here to hear this sermon. It would be a great sermon for them to hear, but I don't need to listen to this. Um, not so fast, I would say. Um, let's take a look at what they were doing to see if maybe it hits closer to home than, than you might think. So first off, let's talk about oaths. Oaths, simply a way to guarantee something. So we might be more comfortable with the word vow or promise, but it's all the same type of thing. It used to be common practice in our day when you made an agreement with somebody to just shake hands on it. That was, that was enough, I'm told. I still wonder if that was really, if that worked well. You know, there's that whole idea of the old school businessman who still does that. My word is my bond. And it's like, well, you can't take a handshake to court. You can take a contract to court. So I think, you know, it's a great idea, but... The Old Testament is filled with all kinds of different examples of these oaths and the vows that people would make on behalf of God that promised they would keep their word or you know, that they would fulfill whatever they'd said they'd, they're doing. And that's what Jesus is addressing here. The problem is that somewhere along the lines, the Jewish rabbis began to teach that oaths may or may not be binding depending on how you swore or what you swore upon. So they created loopholes basically so you didn't have to honor your vow. And this reminds me of something that we, we did when we were kids. Um, if you wanted someone to believe you, but you had no intention of keeping your vow, there was a foolproof way of getting out of it every time. And you remember what it was, right? You just crossed your fingers. How did this work? <laughs> I don't even know why this became a thing, because it, it, it was a thing. And, and you, people would start to look for the fingers, you'd put them behind your back, and then pretty soon you'd cross your legs or your arms or your eyes. We got good at it. But, but it, the, the deal was, once you said, I had my fingers crossed, they, they would say, well, you, oh, darn, you got me. You don't owe me that five bucks anymore. I don't know why it worked, but it worked. This is exactly the kind of thing Jesus is addressing when he talks about not swearing by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or by your own head. Because what they were doing, for instance, is they, they taught that if you swore by the temple, it wasn't binding. But if you swore by the temple's gold, uh, now you're stuck. See how that works? They taught that if you didn't include God, God's name or imply his name, that your oath wasn't binding. But if you did, it was. So they found creative ways to lie, to get away with it, and to feel good about it. And isn't that exactly what we want? You know, sounds great. I love it when I can lie, get what I want, and not face any consequences. That's sign me up for that. But I wonder what God thinks about this. Good news is we don't have to wonder because Jesus talks about this very thing in Matthew 23 when, he, when he, he gets after the Pharisees for it. And he says this, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that made the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In other words, there are no loopholes. Whenever you make a promise, God is behind that somewhere because he owns everything. He is everything. He's your creator. You can't trick him. 
You can't get one over on him and say, ah, I had my toes crossed, God. You didn't notice. That's not going to work in God's court at all. God will not be mocked. And according to Proverbs 12, 22, he hates lying lips. Even says it's an abomination to him. I don't think we think of it that way. You know, he hates it when we find ways to be dishonest and then pretend that we're not. And that's exactly what they were doing here. They came across a challenging law that they knew they would have a hard time keeping. But since law keeping was kind of the way to heaven in their minds, they had to find a way to reduce it to something manageable, something they could do and be, you know, still be okay. So they came up with this bizarre system. They found a way to break the law and feel good about it. And just like crossing your fingers, it's kind of shocking that they pulled it off. They got away with it. God's really clear on how he feels about this. But the religious leaders somehow convinced the people, hey, this is okay. This is kind of a gray area, the truth here. We can, we can play with it a little bit. There's some room for flexibility. And, and it, the people went, okay, good. <laughs> you know, that's how we are. Now we can laugh at that and think, well, those guys are the worst. I can't believe how gullible those people are. But this is the point where the mirror comes out and gets held up in front of you. Because we find ways to do the exact same things and feel good about it. We may not make the kinds of oaths that they made, but we still come up with creative workarounds, don't we? And it's to the point where we've even come up with ways to let people know when we're actually telling the truth and when we're not. It's kind of funny how we do this, but I remember when my brother and his wife got married, they used to have this thing where if they didn't trust what the other person was saying, they would ask the question, God's truth? God's truth? And it was like, okay, you got me. And then they would, they would say, yeah, I got to tell the truth. And we do the same thing when we ask somebody, would you swear on your mother's grave or do you swear on your children's grave? It's a weird thing, isn't it? The weirdest one to me by far is cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I mean, whatever is going to happen is probably not as bad as that if you break your promise. I don't know why you would ever say that. That's a weird one. I remember getting called out years ago for using phrases uh, like to be honest and to tell the truth. I used to use them all the time. And then a guy, a friend of mine came up to me and he said, so is it safe to assume that when you don't say that, you're just lying through your teeth and I shouldn't believe you? And I thought, well, that's not what I mean by this at all. So I try not to say that anymore, to be honest. (laughs) Um, But it still comes out. The, The point is this, people shouldn't have a hard time trying to figure out whether or not we're telling the truth. Shouldn't be that hard for us. And one of my favorite examples of this is is, um, these parents who had little kids at the time, and they convinced their kids that when they lied, a visible L would appear on their tongue. God would put an L on there, and only the parents could see it. And and they, they taught them this so that when they thought their kids were lying, they would say, stick out your tongue. And if they weren't lying, they would exonerate themselves in a minute. They would show them their tongue because it's not there. But if they were lying, they would clasp their hands over their mouth, you know, and you're not going to get a look at that. And they would find out. In case you missed the ironic part, what did the parents have to do to get their kids to tell them the truth? They had to lie. That's how messed up we are when it comes to this stuff. We have to, you know, resort to goofy tactics to find out if somebody's telling the truth because... You know, we have a hard time with it as well. And this all begs the question, why do we need to swear? Why do we need to make oaths? Why do we need to have contracts? Why were polygraph machines invented in the first place? And the sad but true answer is because people are liars. We have a hard time telling the truth. That's the answer. It's no secret that the truth is extremely hard to come by today. Um, I tend to be a little cynical, okay, a lot, 
But I'm to the point where I, I find it hard to believe anything anymore. I rarely just believe something hook, line, and sinker. And in part, that's because people are deceived. Well-meaning people are deceived, and then they repeat things that they've heard or that they think are true. And you think, well, I know them. That's, that, maybe that's true. So there's that. And then the other reason is because people are deceivers. There are people that are actively trying to deceive us continually. Like they've made it, it's like their whole life mission, it seems like. And they know that people will believe them. And that's why it's so effective. As Christians, we would do well to be a little more skeptical sometimes than we are. I can't tell you how many times I've seen somebody post something that is completely fake or false that can be disproved in a second, and, they, and it, it makes us look foolish sometimes. Do a little digging. Paul, Paul championed the Bereans who, who when, when he taught them something, they would go back and dig into God's Word to find out. I wonder if this, is, if this is accurate. We should do a little digging as well. Don't believe and repeat everything you hear, especially when you, when you realize that there are people that will, they stand to gain money and power and fame by deceiving you. you know, there's, there's a good motivation to, to, that's why I don't trust the media, by the way. Um, I assume I'm at least partially being lied to because of the agenda that they all have. And I don't just mean CNN or, I mean all of them. They all have an agenda to push. They all have money to make and they all have no problem deceiving you intentionally or unintentionally. There's false stuff that comes out of the media. I kind of miss the days. Maybe I romanticize the old days, but I miss Walter Cronkite. I just remember this, this time when it felt like, it just seemed like they just reported the facts. And I, and I kind of liked that, but it was probably corrupt then too. Anyway, I'm hesitant about that. I'm hesitant to believe things I read or see on the internet. I recently saw a quote from Abraham Lincoln from 1864 that said this, the problem with internet quotes is that you cannot always depend on their accuracy. And he's, and he's absolutely right, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't believe what politicians say, and I know this is, you know, get stepping on toes sometimes, but it, it baffles me. We have seen them lie time and time again, and, and we still want to believe what they say sometimes. And I, I believe the old adage, you know, you know how to tell if a politician's lying? Yeah, their lips are moving. <laughs> And I don't say that to, you know, it's, it's they have so much to gain by, by, you know, retaining control. And so they will do what they have to do. I even remember, you know, getting to this point as a parent when I, I, I realized I couldn't believe my kids. Now, when they were little, really little, they all lied. And that, that part I knew. I meant when they got older and they started doing like more heinous crimes, things that I didn't want to believe they were capable of. And I remember getting to that point where I, I had to realize, oh my goodness, they, they, they can and probably did do what I, you know, they did steal that thing. They did smoke that thing. They did, you know, I didn't want to believe that. Every parent goes through that where they don't want to believe it. And then they realize, wow. And you wonder, well, how, what, how could that have happened? And then you, then you go, oh, that's right. They were raised by a sinful person that also happens to lie and do bad things. But we don't, we don't want to believe that. And now, you know, we, anytime self-preservation or, or the idea of, you know, getting what you want is, is at stake, we'll do what we have to do. And now as a, as a society, we we've, we've begin to teach that truth is subjective. It's not something you can actually grab hold of. Um, we've leveled up to this thing now to where there is no truth. And when that happens, all bets are off. There, there is no standard for truth anymore. It's a scary thing. So it's kind of like that, the old George Costanza line, 
You know, it's not a lie if you don't believe it. I laughed at that when I heard it the first time. I thought, that's hilarious. Well, now it's actually happening. You know, if you don't believe it's a lie, it's not. And it's like, how does that work? Well, it's working. So you'll have people now that will say, I think two plus two is four. And then somebody else will say, well, I don't. That's not my truth. I think two plus two is five. And I'm like, but math, you know, or biology. There's things that we should be able to point out and say, no. And it, and it seems to be gone. And when that happens, all bets are off. There's no standard for what's true and for what isn't. And it's a scary thing. At that point, we can justify almost anything, which is kind of what we want. And that's what Jesus is addressing in this sermon. That's exactly what they were doing. They were getting what they wanted by bending or twisting or deceiving people. And that's why having a reliable standard of truth is so important. We have to have a plumb line, something we can measure other things against. And that's what God's word is for us. Jesus said, God, your word is truth. Sanctify them, set them apart by your truth. This is what I can trust in 100% every time. And if something doesn't line up with that, it's not true. So we need a plumb line. It's his word. It's not the media. It's not Google. It's not the government. It's not popular opinion. And it's certainly not you. <laughs> it's, it's this. So we need to rely on it. Um, and then this brings us, of course, to the question of why we don't tell the truth. Why do we make promises that we don't intend to keep? And it really comes down to two reasons. We lie to get things we want, and we lie to avoid things we don't want. That's it, pretty much. So if we want a good job, we pad the resume a little bit, put a little extra something in there that'll make them want to hire you. If you want a good tax return, you know, just, just make a few tweaks. It's okay. They won't figure it out. You know, you don't have to claim that. I mean, you know, you can just leave this part out. It'll be okay. You'll get a better tax return. If you want to get out of a speeding ticket, you know, come up with a good story. You know, you can find a way. Just tell them something. If you don't want to talk to somebody, I remember this one, just, you know, tell them, tell them, tell them at lunch. Tell them I'm not in the office. Really? If you don't want to hang out with somebody, we say, I have plans. I have plans at night. Well, if your plans are to deceive people, I guess you have plans, but you probably don't. I love it. This is hilarious to me, but we run into people as pastors in the, in the community sometimes that haven't been to church in a while. And without fail, almost without fail, they will see you and they will say, oh, I'll be at church on Sunday. It just comes out of their mouth. And I used to get so excited. I would think, yes, they're coming to church on Sunday. And I would wait out, you know, by the windows like a dog, you know, just looking, you know, when are they going to get here? And then it's like, what's 10.05? They're not, oh, they told me what I wanted to hear. You know, that's, and now I, now I get excited if somebody actually does come. I don't expect it, but we lie to, to please people and we lie to impress people. And unfortunately, I wish I could tell you that as a pastor, I'm exempt from this, but I'm not. You know, we have, we have other pastors and friends who are more qualified and better educated than we are. I know that's shocking for you to hear. Um, but there are times when they'll ask us a question about, a, you know, a theological thing or a, a, an author or something like that. I'm, you know, just that idea of like, oh, have you read Dietrich Bonhoeffer? And I'm like, yeah, of course I have. I mean, what, who would? And then you're Googling Dietrich Bonhoeffer later to find out who he is. Um, because I'd feel like I was an idiot if I said I, I hadn't. I now I know who he is because I had to pick somebody I knew. I can't pick somebody I don't know. But here's the problem. What, what if they ask a follow-up question? And, oh, what's your favorite Bonhoeffer book? Wow, wow. well, that would have to be uh, the one maybe about, uh, about God. <laughs> it's like you're hoping he's a Christian. And, you know, like, and maybe, maybe the man and the church. 
oh, you mean, you know, you're talking about life together? Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So you get into that, that, that point. One lie adds to another lie, adds to another lie, and pretty soon your pants are on fire, right? That's, that's kind of how it goes. <laughs> After we lie, then we need to find a way to feel good about it. So then we soften what we've done. We, we, we just say, like, you know what? I, I, just, I stretched the truth a little. <laughs> Isn't that a good one? I just stretched it a little. That sounds good. My favorite one is, you know what? It was a white lie. Like, it wasn't one of those dark, evil, black lies. This was a pure lie. This was a good one. A white lie. That's not a thing. <laughs> or, or we just exaggerate a little. You know, we, we weren't really lying. We were just exaggerating, like the fish that gets bigger and all that kind of stuff. I do that every time somebody asks how big the church is. I immediately, I want to say, you know, I'm, again, they're going to they're gonna think, they're going to judge us. They're going to think poorly of us if we say, oh, I don't know, it's like 70, 80. So you, you want to say, oh, 300, 400. Do you mean from the time we opened the doors in 2011, all the people that have come through, or do you mean on a given Sunday? And then if you get caught, a really good tactic is to, to say that you were just fibbing. I'm giving you guys some, some advice here, you know. Just act like they should have known better. Turn it back on them. You should have known that I was fibbing. You're an idiot if you didn't know that. Make it them, not you. That's, that's another good one. Or you can just convince yourself that lying was your best option. We do this as well. And sometimes, you know, it's, I just thought the other day, um, I won't say who, but somebody held up their baby in front of us and said, isn't this the most beautiful baby you've ever seen in your life? And I remember thinking, I'm going to just swallow my tongue. And it's a beautiful baby, don't misunderstand. But, but that's, a, that's the kind of question you should be scared to answer, right? And it was great because Pastor David was there and he said, nah, not as beautiful as my kids were. Great answer. He was telling the truth and it didn't hurt anybody's feelings. But we think that we, don't, we want to try to save somebody or not hurt them by, by doing these things. All of these things are very, very easy to do. And it can become such a habit for us that pretty soon we, we do it without thinking. It becomes second nature. It just pops out of your mouth. And you can even begin to believe the lies after a while if you tell enough of them. That's not good. Lies are destructive. Lies hurt people. Lies betray people's confidence in you. And they destroy relationships. Have you ever been lied to? How does it feel? How does it feel when you know somebody has lied to you over and over again, deceived you? What are the worst feelings in the world? Guess what? That's exactly how somebody feels when you do the same. And if you persist in lying, you know, pathological kind of people, eventually nobody will ever trust you. And I've seen that. I've seen people that are in that spot. It's a really hard hole to dig out of. And it's one of the saddest things. It's like the boy who cried wolf. Pretty soon nobody will believe anything you say. And all of this brings us to the point of, of what Jesus says here when he, when he basically says, you've heard it said don't make an oath you don't intend to keep at all. But I say to you, don't even make oaths. Don't even make one. That, that's kind of a strange thing to say. Why would he say this? And there's two reasons he would say this. The first one is because you stink at it, right? And the second one is oaths shouldn't be necessary. It shouldn't come to that. Now, of course, we know that oaths and promises are part of life in a broken world. They exist. You can't, you know, you can't get a job. You can't go to you know, when you go to court, if you join the military, even if you download an app on your phone, you agree to, you know, you, you are, you, you look at it. By penalty of law, you're saying, I agree to something. So we make them all the time. And it's not a coincidence that this comes right after the section on divorce, because everybody who's gotten married has made vows before God. 
Uh, last week, Joy and I celebrated 32 years of marriage, and, and I, I thought back as, you know, what were the vows that I made to her then, and how am I doing? You guys have made similar vows, right? I take you to be my husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. And then, and then you think about the previous sections that Jesus has just talked about, anger in your heart, lust in your heart, the, the desire to divorce, all these things. And, and I, have to, I have to just look at that and think, I haven't done awesome with these vows. I haven't done a good job all the time. Praise God, our marriage is strong. We're doing great. I know we, um, but I stink at vow keeping. That's the point. I don't know if you guys remember Promise Keepers. It was a very big men's movement in the 90s. I went to one of these events. It was, it was just massive. All these men, it was incredible. They would ask Christian men to make seven promises. Commit to honor Jesus Christ. Commit to pursue vital relationships with other men. Commit to practice spiritual, moral, ethical, and sexual purity. Commit to build strong marriages and families. Commit to the mission of his church. Commit to reach beyond racial and denominational barriers to demonstrate the power of biblical unity and commit to influence the world, being obedient to the great commandment and the great commission. Those are great things to commit to. All of them are good. Every Christian should desire these things. But I remember on the last day of this conference, they asked all the men to take their shoes off because they, you know, we were standing on holy ground and we were going to make a vow to keep these seven promises. And I was standing by all these guys that took their shoes off and they, they were repeating these vows. And I, I remember just being brokenhearted as I watched this because I knew I couldn't do it. I couldn't make these promises because I know myself. I might make it a month, maybe a week, probably not even until I got home before I broke one of these things. And I knew that. I can't even keep New Year's resolutions. I quit making them a long time ago. I'm like a couple days and it's like, I'm out. I can't do it. And Jesus knows this. He knows this about me. He knows that Brent is not a promise keeper. Brent is a promise breaker. Even with my very best intentions, I fail. And in verse 36, I love that Jesus points out kind of the, the ridiculousness of, of us making vows in this sense. He says, you're going to make a vow involving your own head, and you can't even make a hair white or black. That doesn't include hair dye, by the way. That's, that doesn't, that's not what he's saying. But you're going you're to put your head on the chopping block with the vow you make, and, and you can't even control outcomes. You're not sovereign. You don't have power over anything. And, and this is it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. I don't know if you guys know the story of um, Jephthah in the book of Judges, uh, Judges 11. He basically makes a deal with God. Uh, if you help us to defeat the Ammonites, when we get home from battle, from victory, whatever walks through my door, I will sacrifice to you, Lord. That's the vow he made. That seemed like a good vow to make. And he really wanted to win the war. I think sometimes we feel like the bigger the vow we make, the more, you know, the, the more we get God's arm behind his back, like maybe the bigger the payoff will be. I'll make you a really big vow, God, so that you give me the big payoff. I don't know what normally came through Jephthah's door when he got home from, you know, I hope I'm, it was his daughter, his only daughter. Now, before you get too, um, I don't think that he sacrificed his daughter. There's people that teach that. If you read Judges 11, it starts out by saying the spirit of the Lord filled Jephthah. 
when it says that he sacrificed her, this could have meant the idea of sacrificed her to God's service. This was a common thing that would happen. That's why she went out to mourn her virginity. She was never going to get married. She was never going to have a kid. And he even ends up in, in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith. His name is there. So I don't think he, this was a, that, that situation, even though that's taught sometimes. But I believe he, he basically said, I will give you over to the Lord forever and you'll be his servant. You won't get married and you won't have kids. He made a foolish vow. That's the point. He didn't know who was going to come through that door. Why would we do something like that? But again, it's because we want the payoff. It would be better for us just to entrust ourselves to the one who can actually control outcomes instead of trying to manipulate people and circumstances to get what we want. This section ends with Jesus saying, just simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. And James says it this way in James 5.12, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. In other words, oaths shouldn't be necessary. People should just do what is right and honor their words and commitments. This is the heart of God for his creation. But as we've already pointed out, we stink at this. We don't do it well. So now what? It's so tempting to hear a sermon like this and and determine like from now on, it's the truth for me all the time. And you go charging out of here ready to tell the truth. That's what I want to do. Um, And as God's redeemed people, I would say we should absolutely want this. That that should be, you know, being people of integrity, people whose word is our bond, people can be trusted is something we should all want. If that desire isn't there in you, I would say that Christ may not be there because this is a very, this is, this is Christ in us kind of thing. But at some point next week, even with the very best intentions, you're probably going to blow it again. And now what? The point of Jesus' sermon is to show you that only he can fulfill what God wants. He's your only shot at righteousness. You know, we've been conditioned to believe that we can play a part in all of this. We can, we can, we can really add to this kind of stuff. Um, we can play a part in earning God's favor, and we can play a part in keeping God's favor. I, I don't know, when you, in school, you remember the GPA? The, the, I remember how this thing worked. It was your grade point average. And the way it worked for me is that if I stunk in one subject, but I could somehow do okay in another subject, my, my GPA would kind of rise up to where I could graduate. And it was very, it was, it was kind of hard for me to figure this out because I didn't do a whole lot of work in high school. But <laughs> But it, that's the idea. I think Christians think this way. As long as, you know, I might not be doing very good in the honesty department, but I haven't been divorced and I'm doing okay in anger. So somehow this will just, you know, at the end of the day, if I really apply myself and buckle down and maybe find a way to do some extra credit, you know, help an old lady across the street or something, then, then somehow my spiritual GPA will climb up to a point where God will, will accept me. And this is why so many churches teach what amount to self-improvement sermons. What Jesus is teaching through the Sermon on the Mount is that your cumulative GPA isn't going to cut it. God doesn't grade on a curve, and even if he did, I'm sorry to say none of us would make it. And, and if it were possible, by the way, if we could find a way to do this on our own, why did Jesus go through what he went through on the cross? If you could have found a way without him, why, why would God send his son? Jesus is your only answer. You can't pass the test. He can. So don't misunderstand this. With Jesus, A++++. Without Jesus, F. That's it. You're not close. You need Jesus desperately. You know, there's, this, there's these two verses that I think we need to put together sometimes. I can do all things through Christ. Without him, I can do nothing. You know, I don't know why we forget this. 
regularly, I forget this. I remember when I was a copy repair guy, um, I would, there would be these times where it didn't seem to matter what I was in front of, I could fix it. I felt like the Fonz, you know, it was like, you know, and it would start working. And my manager would call me and say, hey, these guys can't fix this. You know, they've, they've been at it all day. Can you go over? And I'm like, let me at it. And I'd walk in and, you know, and it would work. And I'd, I'd be walking around thinking I'm pretty awesome. And, and then about that time, because what comes before a fall? Pride does, you know, I would forget, you know, maybe this is the Lord, Brent, that's allowing you to, to, no, no, it's me, it's me. Well, then I would go from the guy that could fix whatever came my way to the guy that could fix absolutely nothing, like nothing. I would just stand there like the village idiot in front of the copier going, I don't, I, I couldn't fix it. And I, to the point where you'd be thinking, maybe I should just grab a McDonald's application on the way home and just change vocations. Not that there's, you know, that wasn't meant to be demeaning to McDonald's employees. But I would quite, and then you'd realize, oh, I've done that thing again that I do. I can do nothing apart from Christ, but with him I can do everything. And then I would confess my sin, repent, <laughs> watch it change again, and then, you know, repeat the process, unfortunately. But, but that's the reality. So, so since we are promise breakers who are unreliable and can't be counted on, and God's standard, you know, standard of perfection is, is what it is, full integrity, full honesty, what do we do? When the mirror of the law shows us our true condition, that we fall short of God's standard, we flee to Jesus, and, and, and he becomes our righteousness. He becomes our promise keeper by faith. We need God's grace. So confess your sin. Confess your inability, ask him to forgive you, and trust in his work on the cross to save you. Bow before him as your Lord, and he will make you a new creation who is filled with his perfect righteousness, who has new desires. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit writes his, God's law on our hearts. We now get to walk in newness of life through his power and start to do things differently. You know, we, we lie because we don't, to get something we want or to avoid something we don't want. When the Holy Spirit changes these desires in us, it changes what we want. It changes what we don't want. We, we, it just, life is new. And this is a lifelong process for sure, but hopefully you're seeing progress in these areas. I, I, again, this year I was doing my taxes. I already mentioned taxes. I've got TurboTax. It's kind of cool because you can put numbers in and, and then you see what it's going to be. You can change the numbers and you can see what it's going to be. And I did. We owed a lot this year. So I thought, oh, I wonder if I, just, if I just changed a couple of numbers. Oh, that's better. And then I'm sitting there with this dilemma. Pastor Brent, <laughs> what are you going to do? Are you going to trust in your own ability? Trust in money? Grieve the Lord? Or are you going to say, you know what? I don't have to worry about this stuff. God's got me. I I'm new. I can do this and trust him. You know, and it felt good to do the right thing. Not, not when I paid the bill, actually. But, but, but it's like, I don't have to worry about this. God's got me. And I believe that. Lying ultimately shows a lack of trust and a lack of fulfillment in God. Now, I want to close this morning with, with an account in the Bible of the covenant that God made with Abram because it really illustrates our need for God to become our promise keeper. And so I, I, hopefully you remember this, this story. God had promised Abraham an heir. He said that your heir will come and, and the descendants of this heir will be greater than the sand on the seashores, the, the skies or the stars in the sky, and, and all nations will be blessed through this heir. That sounds fantastic. What a great promise from God. Problem was, Abraham didn't have an heir at this point. And so he knows how things work. Abraham knows what the world is like. Promises are great, but what are you going to do to guarantee? What kind, of, what kind of a guarantee of this promise can I have? And so in, in, in Genesis 15, God's response is kind of strange. 
Abraham says, show me something. And he says, um, bring me a, a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. That's God's response. Abraham's response is even weirder, in my opinion. He gets all the animals God asks for, cuts them in half, lays them out on a path, you know, a path between them, kind of mirror images of the, he didn't cut the birds in half, but okay, I, would you have known to do that? <laughs> God, no, hopefully not. This wouldn't have been your first instinct. Abraham's like, well, I guess this is what I should do. This is how they actually made contracts. So if God would have said, you know, call your attorney, come with your papers at noon, we would understand that. But, but Abraham knew exactly what was going on here. The idea would be that they would lay these animals out and through this pathway, they would walk through together. And this is how they would sign their name on the contract. Now, their contracts carried far more weight than ours today because what they were doing was acting out what would happen to the person who broke the contract, okay? There's an example in Jeremiah for specifics. Jeremiah 34, it says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. Okay, that, that's a very visual contract that certainly would have made you think twice about breaking it, Right? And this is where the story takes on a great deal of meaning for me. In verse 12 of Genesis 15, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So Abraham can still see, he can still hear, but he's incapacitated. He's conscious, but incapacitated. In verse 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a flaming fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So the smoking pot and the flaming torch are symbolic of God's presence. They represent God walking through, ratifying the covenant. So he signed his name. So by God doing this, he's saying, if I don't keep my promise to you, Abraham, may what happened to these animals happen to me. May my body and my blood be shed. I'm starting to give it away already. I get emotional. May this happen to me. Now, this is super encouraging to know that God did this for us because you know, that's great that he signed this contract, but I'm not really worried about God's part. You know, I, I know he'll do what he's supposed to do because he's God. I'm worried about my part. If I'm Abraham, I'm worried about me. And I don't want what happened to those animals to happen to me when I break this covenant. Because as I've already told you, I'm not a good vow keeper. And this is where the really good news comes in. What normally happened after the first party walked between the pieces is the second party would do the same. And that was their way of signing the contract. Did Abraham walk through? No, he just laid there comatose, literally did nothing. What was his participation in the covenant? Nothing. He added nothing. God did it all. God walked through for both parties. And by doing this, he's saying that he will be responsible for both parties. So he's not only saying, may this happen to me if I don't keep my end of the covenant, but may this happen to me if you don't keep your end of the covenant. Wow. I will suffer your consequences. I will become like those animals on the ground. My body will be broken and my blood shed if you fail to live up to your end of the covenant. And this is the good news of the gospel. This was a foreshadow of all these years later when darkness would cover the land again. Jesus would go walk up that hill to walk through those pieces for us, to become our covenant keeper. He paid the price that we deserve to pay. 
And I just, it just, I love that he is my covenant keeper. He is the only thing that I can bank on. I can't bank on me, but he's done it all. And we can receive this by faith. And if you never have, I pray that today is the day that you would. Father, thank you so much that um, you, you put up with us. <laughs> uh, you, Lord, we, we fail in so many ways, and, and your word shows us this, and yet you provided our remedy through your son. Thank you that he was willing to, to basically do what we couldn't do by going to the cross, by fulfilling the covenant for us. And may we, may we believe in his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. May we confess that he is Lord and believe that you raised him from the dead and have life. Thank you so much, Father, for loving us and for all that you've done. May your name be just magnified in our presence today. And if there's anybody here, Lord, that's never bowed before you today, I, I pray they would, that they would, they would bow before you as Lord and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.